0: I'm your host, Lyrian, Family Counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Hey there, it's Allison. Welcome back to the
2: podcast. It's a Q&A session today. So thank you for your patience. I know people have been submitting questions and waiting to hear their um, answer and advice. I appreciate that. If you've got a question for me, you can send it in through uh, my hashtag #AskAllison uh, link in the bio here in the show notes uh, on any of my social media platforms and I'm happy to, to provide you some help. So we'll just begin here. Hi, Allison. Firstly, I'd like to say thank you for being such a great resource for Adlerian Parenting. Your podcast has been invaluable for my husband and I. We have two daughters, a two-and-a-half-year-old and a a four-month-old. Recently, my toddler has started daycare and, as expected, has been very teary at drop-off. And again, when I pick her up, she has only been twice. And the first time I was able to diffuse the situation at drop-off by reminding her that there was yummy food and she willingly took the hand of one of the staff members and walked off with them. The second time, however, as she knew the drill. She was very upset at drop-off, and one of the staff members ended up having to carry her away while she was screaming for me, saying, I just want to stay with you, mom. I know this is very common with daycare drop-offs, but I still worry about creating trust issues. Any tips or advice would be greatly appreciated. So thank you for the question. You know, isn't it great that you've already got some insight here in in terms of saying that you know that it's as expected, it's developmental, and you know that she knew the drill. So you you've got yourself already educated around some of these things. But let me give you some confidence to feel assured that you are not creating a trust issue. In fact, I would reframe that completely to say what you're doing by dropping your child off and coming back to pick them up is you're developing a trust issue. That mommy goes and mommy comes back. That mommy loves me and she's going to love me again when she picks me up. And what you're doing is helping the child learn experientially. You're developing a muscle called social interest. Social interest is the, the care and concern for other people. It's about training a child to say in this world, I have my primary attachment figure, my mother, you. Um, But there's other people, My, my dad or my other mother, my grandparents, caregivers, nannies, babysitters, daycare teachers. There are other people in the world who can look after me. And I want to know that they will care for me when my mother's not there. They will change my diaper. They'll make sure I have food. They will hug me when I'm upset that there are other people who can be in my world who will caretake me. And I will show an interesting, caretake for them. And I will bring them uh, cookies that I made on the weekend. And I will look forward to seeing my friends and hearing about what happened on their weekend at circle time. These are such important developmental tasks. You're getting her to grow her bubble and to realize that the world is a loving place and that many people can be caring towards her. So you are developing trust issues. You're not breaking trust issues with her. Um, And if you think about it, you know, when we use the saying, it takes a village, um, we need to be able to say, listen, I have to go off on a hunt or I need to go over here and, you know, Pound wheat to make bread. I, I need to be busy. I need to do other things. You, you're. I, I was not put on this planet just to simply stare and smile at you while you play. Um, and so you're giving them a real representation that life has demands on all people, and this is the reality of life. And when we make an artificial reality of life, we end up with kids who are entitled and demanding. And so I want to represent life. I, I love you and you're important. And when I spend time with you, that's fantastic, but you can also spend time with other people. And I have other things that I need to get done in a day and that is okay. So, um, you know, I was a nursery school teacher for for many years and I helped open a couple of nursery schools here in Toronto. And we certainly talk about, uh, the drop-off. We, we, we call that drop-off period is again, to your point, can be a little clingy and, and, um, and teary. But I'll tell you from all years that I've also spent on the other side of the door, those tears are really for the parent, the longer you linger, the more they stay emotional in that state of mind, the, the dreaded anticipation of you leaving. So a lot of parents want to stay until the child is calm. But staying actually keeps the child dysregulated, they don't move on to settling in until after you're, you leave. So I call it the happy snappy goodbye. Because as soon as you're out of sight, and we get them engaged in the classroom and engaged with other people, they get distracted, they get embedded, and they start to play and they're happy. And yes, you're right. At, when we put them at circle time and get them all dressed in their jackets and coats for pickup, the first time that door opens and one parent arrives to pick up their kids, the whole class starts to cry again. And of course, you know, the parent thinks, oh my gosh, I dropped them off crying. I picked them up crying. They've been crying for three hours. But that's not the truth. They cried for three minutes at drop off and three minutes at pickup. So I would say that the the happy snappy drop off, happy snappy pickup, don't be late, (laughs) be there, get that, get the handing off back to the parents as as fast as possible. So that those distressed states are as short as possible. Delaying, lingering, those are the things that add more tension to a child's life. So I hope that makes you feel better. Keep doing the good work. I'm sure that part of the clinginess is also, you know, how come I'm getting dropped off and you get to stay home with the four month old baby? I think there is um, when a new sibling comes along. I think that's one of those first um, little bits of of sibling competition jealousy right there. But it doesn't mean you change that you're going to drop them off. It's just to understand that they're learning more about the fact that the world is shared with everybody and they'll do just fine if your attitude about it is positive. Okay, next question. Hope this email finds you and your family well. Thank you for that. I was just wondering if you had any suggestions about discussing death. My daughter is nine and my father is in his last stages of vascular dementia. Her teacher contacted me to let her know that she was feeling upset about it in school. I try to talk to her, but I don't feel like I'm saying the right things. Any age appropriate book references would be appreciated. Um, I have a page on my website called uh, Resources, and you can always look there for book topics. And if anyone discovers a book that they really like, um, please let me know. I liked, I'll i review it, and, and if it's um, worthy, I'll put it up there. Um, uh, the folks at the Ontario um, – the sorry, I'm going to maybe get the name wrong here – Bereaved families of Ontario is the word I'm trying to say there are fantastic. Um, And so if you're looking for additional support, uh, you can check in with those folks as well. But I think the important thing to know here is um, it is an appropriate emotion to feel sad and upset as you know that somebody is facing death. And um, as parents, it may be very difficult for us to watch our child be upset to be in pain it's very painful as a parent but i don't think the solution as uncomfortable as that is for us to watch and witness i don't think that the answer to it is for us to alleviate suffering from our child because because we can't it's going to be sad death is sad and, um, and grieving is appropriate. It's, it's part of the process. And so I can't alleviate her suffering in the sense of making it go away. Um, but you can sit with her in it. And you can let her know it is sad. And this is hard. And we're all feeling sad. And I think that one of the things that you can talk about is, you know, what she needs to kind of be at peace. And some of those things might be. Um, and different people have very different beliefs about this. Some people really want to know, like, at least at least his suffering will be over. Or it might be, at least he'll be able to join grandma who's in heaven. Um, or at least he'll meet his maker. Some people are very spiritual based around God in heaven. <clears throat> I, I personally am not so those weren't the things that i told my kids but i cer but of course that's you know that's one of the, the one of the functions of of religion is it gives us peace in believing those things so if that's your faith then you know share those with your kids absolutely um but for me it was more about talking about the legacy of the impact of a life, like throwing a stone into the water and watching the ripples resonate out from it and thinking about how we touch, how someone touches our lives and how we keep them with us and their impact of being born and alive and in our world um, from keeping those memories alive and keeping traditions and things. So sharing the stories, um, promising that we'll remember them and keeping them in our minds, you know, looking, putting pictures up and... um, you know, then asking your child, is there anything that you still need to say? And uh, some kids do want to to share how important that person has been, whether that's in drawing a picture, writing a story, um, by making a little shadow box gift for them of of, of important memories, something like that. Action is always really, really important. And um, you're probably doing more than you know, you're doing by just being with somebody. So sitting beside them, putting your arm around them, crying at the same time—those are all things of just joining and being with. We uh, we don't. This isn't a problem to solve. It's a problem to feel supported around. Um, so I hope I hope that's helpful. The other thing I think is important for people to know, just because you're asking about book resources, there is um, great resources to be found at every public library, and. Uh, librarians who work in the children's section are trained in a very special way. My grandmother was a children's librarian. So I I say that from a firsthand um, experience. So not the general librarian, they have training too, obviously, you know, you go to school to be a librarian, but children's librarians, they don't, not every town and not every library has the capacity to hire somebody that's specially trained in that. But what they have in the children's section is they have a big book of like, it's like a reverse index that gets published. So if you say, I have a nine-year-old, and um, she's we want books that have as a theme, death and grieving, they can go reference, oh, okay, you know, is she into this book or that book? Like, now nine's a bit old, but I remember uh, 10 Good Things About Barney. I think it's by Judith Viorst. And uh, I remember reading that book as as a child. So that might skew under nine. And a lot of books have been written since because how old am I now? Um, but, but that knowing that you've got a reference where you could say, oh, do you have a, a book on uh, how to be a good friend? Or do you have a book on the character trait of persistence? Or, you know, they can make recommendations. So I think that That resource gets underutilized. So I just want people to know about that. So I'm very sorry that you have this impending loss coming up. And I I hope that that is some some kind of help for for you in in dealing with it, uh, both for you and your daughter and for the whole family. If you've got kids, chances are they're interacting with technology in your household. We know that tech is here to stay. The difficulty for parents is learning how to manage it in a way that we can reap all the wonderful benefits that tech has to offer while mitigating the risks and the downside. So to that end, I'm going to put on a webinar, and you're invited to attend either live or to get a recording to watch at your own pace and time. We're going to be talking about how to make a media plan that really will be effective In helping your children at different ages and stages of their development. But it's not enough just to make a good media plan. It also means that we need to know how to enforce it. So, we're gonna be talking about parenting tactics around that. As well, we're gonna have all those good, tough conversations about those real safety issues and how to make sure that our kids are safe as they're surfing online and those sticky spots that are likely to come up. Are you gonna find kids who have bullying texts? sexting, you not getting response to your text message when that was the conditions of having the phone, whatever those tricky situations are, we're going to be talking about them. So check out my upcoming webinar. We'll see you soon. Next question. Hi, Allison. I'm looking for some guidance for equipping my 11-year-old daughter with the right tools for a challenging friendship. This friend has been in the picture since preschool. She's confident and she always pushes her way into the center of attention. She acts and dresses much older than her age, can be boisterous and, quite frankly, obnoxious. She is also at times rude, bullying. Example, capital letter mean texts excludes, meaning play with me and tell that other friend to leave and has free reign on social platforms that my daughter is not yet allowed to use. She also seems to run the show in the schoolyard. My daughter is also very confident. They don't clash for an alpha position. My daughter genuinely prefers to keep the peace and have fun. My daughter does have other friendships, which she enjoys, but she still goes back and spends time with this particular friend because the the friend is fun. things are good. When I talk to my daughter about how her friend behaves, she observes the situation astutely and agrees her friend's behavior is offside. When my daughter calls out said behavior to her friend, the response is glossing over it, not apologizing, and changing the subject. My daughter also agrees that when she gauges her feelings after hanging out with this friend versus other, she has more positive feelings from her other friendships. We also talk about her family rules and she doesn't overstep them when hanging out with this friend, or at least to my knowledge, despite these conversations, my daughter is not connecting for herself. This friend is probably not a good one to keep around. My daughter keeps going back for more, wanting to hang out. I've tried to limit the time with my daughter, that my daughter spends with her, declining some play dates, not signing them up for the same activities, but I am wondering if I should take a harder line about them hanging out together. What is your guidance about prescribing the friends our kids can keep? She says thanks, and then it says PS. Another part of the challenge is proximity. This friend lives very close by, and the mom and I have grown a friendship over the years as well. PPS, thanks in advance for the guidance. Love your podcast and all your parenting tips. Okay, thank you for that. Um, you know what? Oh gosh, thank you for that vivid description. I'm sure there's lots of parents listening saying, Yep, I got my kids got that kid in their life too. But you end with the very succinct question: What is your guidance around prescribing the friends our kids can keep? We can't. What is that magic that makes us love and like people? What what is the attraction? You know, there's something whimsical, magical, out of the ordinary in in who we pick. And for some reason, she has picked this person. I don't know, maybe she's got qualities that your daughter wishes she had. Maybe she has social status in the classroom and she wants to get into the inner circle. Or there's, there's some compelling reason. We will maybe never be able to understand it. But what I love is that you've done so much there in saying... What does a good friendship look like? How do you feel when she treats you that way? Can you speak up? And she does. Does she have other friends? She's not at the mercy of this friendship. Uh has she learned the the fine art of acquiescing in order to keep the peace and tolerate? She she does. <laughs> so there's so much good going on here. There's so much good going on here. Um at the end of the day, I think she'll just end up Whatever, growing tired, moving on. This there's so many friendships she's gonna try on for size. She's not faded. She's, she's clearly not being impacted, like you said. When you set a family rule, you know she's not shoplifting or vaping or trying things by her friend by this influence. She's she's holding on to the rule in your influence. So I think that the only other thing that I would add to this is to just say to her, you know what. Um, I know for me, I wouldn't tolerate a friendship like that, but you know, I trust you to make good decisions for yourself and then leave it be, leave it be, leave it be. Let her know she can come to you if she has friendship problems, but I don't think there's a single other thing for you to do. And it's so interesting in this day and age, because our kids do, our relationships with our kids are better than they've ever been in the history of humankind. So it means that they come to us and they do share a lot. And because they share a lot, we know a lot. We know more. I mean, back in the day, it would have been benign neglect. I mean, you, you know, ask a parent back in the 20s to, to even name their kids friends they wouldn't know. And they certainly wouldn't know what they did in their free leisure time. <laughs> so because we know so much, we've got our eyes on this all the time. And it means that we have an opinion and we want to get in there and get busy with our active verb of parenting. But um, it's just a time to 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 step back and and let her manage. And I I think it sounds like you've done a beautiful job and that she is. So... Have no fear. Have no fear. Let her have a crappy friendship. She'll have a bunch more before she's done growing up and figuring it out for herself. (laughs) Okay. Next question. Hi, Allison. My four-year-old, and for the context, he has a one-year-old brother, has been extremely rude lately. Most notably when we have visitors staying with us, such as his grandparents. He'll contradict everything they say. Um, yell at them when they ask him a question or try to help in any way. Some of these behaviors are present even when we don't have visitors, but to a lesser degree. He's quite particular about having things in their place, his routines and how things are done. So I think he finds it hard when things are out of the ordinary. If his grandmother offers to read him one of his bedtime stories, he'll scream, no, go away. Or sometimes even more extreme, I never want to read with you ever. If a guest sits down on the bench by the front door to put on his shoes, he'll yell and push them off because that's where he sits to put his shoes on. Similarly, if they sit in the chair where his dad usually sits in the kitchen table, even if dad's not there, he'll yell and push them to get out of daddy's seat. If they unknowingly do one of his jobs like putting on his putting his boots or mittens away, he'll lose it and collapse on the floor crying. Understandably, the whole situation is upsetting. And disappointing for grandparents who just want to spend time with them. And it makes their visit more stressful for me. I'm not sure how I should react to the rudeness and yelling. I'm also self-conscious about the way I respond to him when others are around. Read. Mother-in-law judging my parenting style. So I'm hoping that you can help me prepare for the next visit. My typical reaction is to calmly validate his feelings. Before the last visit, I came up with a code word with him so that during their visit, he felt like he, if he needed some alone time with me, he could say the word and I'd make sure that we could take a break and do something. Just the two of us. He didn't end up using the word at all and was rude as usual. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Allison. I've learned so many helpful things from you and I feel fortunate to have you as a resource. So, from an illyrian perspective, we say that all behavior has a purpose. What's the usefulness? of the behavior. And um, we have this wonderful four goal chart um, that um, helps walk us through doing a differential diagnosis to say, is it for undue attention seeking? Is it for power? Is it revenge? Or is it um, for avoidance, you know, assumed inadequacy, helplessness, hopelessness kind of a thing. Those are the four goals under that age. And when you look at that chart, and you're trying to do the differential diagnosis, one of the first uh, criteria or data points that we're looking for is what is the emotional state that it evokes in the people that are in the social scenario when this occurs? Now, I I don't know. You haven't said how grandma and grandpa feel when he is rude to them, but you're sure telling me how it makes you feel um, that you're, you're um, upset and embarrassed that you're feeling judged by the parents. He's, he's uh, bringing up feelings of inferiority around your parenting performance. So, uh, it, it could be that it is a power play so that when you know you might be you might rule the roost when when you're home alone with him but by god he's got you when he can embarrass you in front of your parents and make you feel inadequate in front of the in-laws uh, then he's got the upper hand um you know it could be it could be retaliatory know it's often if he's the eldest because you say he's four and the kids are one it may well be that um he has an eldest rigid rule bound kind of mindset that, that to your point, you know, things are done a certain way and we don't break the rules. And, and that's, that's the rigidity of a young mind. And part of our training as parents is to help move children out of that very simplistic black and white thinking, you know, things, you know, blue is for boys and pink is for girls and boys have short hair and girls have long hair and daddy sits in that chair and and my job is to do mittens. These are very rigid, rule-oriented things and eldest can really like to be first and best and want things just so and to follow the rules in order to make sure that they are being uh, successful in life. Learn the rules, apply the rules, and then you'll know for sure and certain that you are good and worthy. And he might have a really h- hard time with, with rules being bent, but it doesn't mean that we orchestrate a situation whereby we say oh okay he he, the rules have to be rigidly upheld to the child demands it so let's all dance around that instead of us trying to conform our behaviors to the child's view of the world instead we want to move their private logic in line with common sense which is many people can tuck you in And people can help you with shoes and mitts. And well, you might have a preferred chair, when we have company, other people sit in those chairs, and you're teaching him about the reality of the social order. And that might be uncomfortable for him, and he might be demanding that it goes a different way. But we're training him to be a social citizen of the world, and he needs to learn even if it upsets him. So... When he is rude, again, we can't control the child, but we can control our responses to the child. And they try on different behaviors, and they will keep doing the ones that work for him. So I would say when we are together, the social rule that I want to teach him is that when we have company and people come to our house, we're polite and we're social, and we use our the social norm of etiquettes. And if he doesn't choose to be social, if he chooses to be rude, then he needs to be excused from socializing. So I might just say, you know what, we, that when we're out here, we're here for everybody. If we have a hard time with that, then we need to go to our room. And so you can play with your stuffed animals and you can read your books and you can be on your own. But if you'd like to be with us and you'd like to be with grandma and grandpa, then you need to put on your social face. And the social face is kind and polite and accepting of different rules at different times with different people. And if he can't manage that, then I would escort him back to his room. At four, I think it's you, you can um, remove him from the situation. So it's not okay. It's not okay to be rude. Um, but you don't always have to feel social. So I like that you said, like, well, you know, we'll make a little signal if you want time with me. But he doesn't use it. So he's using his rudeness to get something. And that's my best crack at it without, uh, without knowing more. So I hope that's helpful. I think there's a bunch of timeouts in your future and I think there's also a bunch of just working with him to put him outside his comfort zone that he doesn't rule the roost, that there's exceptions to the rule and he needs to be more of a team player. So when you have that training time when you're alone and your parenting is not under the microscope, I would make sure that he's learning to conform to to, to the social order of the house, not you making the social order of the house to the way he wants. So. An example for that might be, he might really want to have chicken fingers for dinner, but you've made meatloaf. He's going to have to deal with the dinner choice that you made, that he might uh, want um, daddy to do the tuck-ins, and you're like, daddy's not available, it's my tuck-in, it's my tuck-in or no tuck-in, as opposed to demanding and getting what he wants all the time. Um, I hope that's, <laughs> you haven't told me that he does that, but I'm I'm seeing um, a, a perspective that he expects life to go by his rules and, uh, and we need to shift that perspective for him. Hope that helps. All right, last one for us today. Hi, Allison. I love your work and follow your advice, and it always works instantaneously. Uh, just wanted to see what your thought was about sex health ed for grade six students. My twins feel it's too early to learn about lesbians and transgender. Many of the girls are then saying they are the above and acting it out in front of my kids, and they feel that it isn't appropriate. I have advised that they need to be respectful to all genders. I worry that by teaching it at an age where they are fitting themselves into society rules and boxes that it's too early. What do you think? All right. So I think it's great that you have said that they need to be respectful to all genders. But in terms of sex education, sex education does not make people act out sexually. You know, we used to think that, oh, if I teach my kids about the birds and the bees, then they're going to want to have sex. And we have all kinds of research to prove that when you teach kids about sex education, we can talk about what the content of that sex ed is in just a second. But when we teach, when we introduce sex education and kids get educated, we actually have um, more responsible behavior, meaning uh, kids tend to use protection. So there's less Unwanted pregnancies, less STIs, uh, delayed onset of first sexual experience, less likely to uh, have sexual activity without consent, all kinds of good outcomes come from this. And because we live in a world, certainly here in Canada, um, that you know it is legal to be in a same-sex marriage, we, we have a, a society which is uh, working towards inclusion, diversity, acceptance for all, and we're trying to to have that in all levels of society, family, school, workplace cultures, government representation. This is this is our aim. So educating people about the fact of of people being non-binary, people being you know LGBTQ, AI, Two Spirit plus, um, teaching about that you're just teaching about diversity and saying that um, to your point that we're respectful to all. Different people have different orientations and different ways of being, and they're all they're all fine. Talking about lesbianism doesn't make somebody a lesbian, but our sexual orientation, our gender expression, those things. Different things happen at different ages and stages. But if you talk to people that are hit, starting to hit the sexual development phase, it usually it's grade six, seven, eight that they start saying, that's when I wanted to come out, that's when I knew. And typically that's when they actually get really um, feelings of, of, isolation and depression because they're confused and they don't know if they want to come out. Will people still like them? And we want to make that the least shameful thing that happens in a child's life. So uh, the fact that there is an environment of safety and security in this friend group where these people can talk about it, I think is fantastic. Now, just like any other relationship, if they're, if if, they're, if the touching and the kissing and whatever is uh, acts of affection that make your tweens uncomfortable, um, what, do we, what do we used to call them? PDAs, public displays of affection, PDAs. I'm pretty sure when I was in grade eight, I didn't like watching my friend's neck and make out. I'm like, take it to a bedroom. I didn't want to see that. That had nothing to do with what, what whether they were binary, non-binary, lesbian, gay, their sexual. It didn't matter. I just I didn't want to see it. So if your twins don't like it, they can just speak up and move their eyeballs somewhere else if they want. But that has nothing to do with their sexual orientation. You know, I really, because I, again, I come from a background with a nursery school. You know, if you're you're a kid in in a nursery school classroom and it's your birthday, it's tradition that your parents come in and that's the day that they're allowed to join the class and bring the cupcakes and we have like a little in-class birthday party. And a lot of the students in my classes have two dads or two moms. And I want those parents to come into the classroom. And so right there, right there, there's the opportunity to say, Oh, Frankie has two mommies. It's his birthday today. Here's his mom's coming in for the birthday cake. Why can't, what, right there and then you just, the kids are so accepting. You just go like, of course, he's got two mommies. They're both here for the for the birthday uh, cupcakes. Um, why would I hold off until grade eight to say that? How, how much of a lie is that? That's like, that's ridiculous to me. Ridiculous. So I I think uh, we talk about these things, we talk about these things early and openly, and that's how we drop shaming, and that's how we teach inclusion and diversity. And um, so I hope that's helpful. I hope that's helpful. Great questions as always, everybody. Keep sending them in. Hope this is helpful for our listeners. Catch you next time.
0: As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishnabek the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.